This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong In this episode, we talk with Jim Biddle, who graduated from JMU's College of Business in 2005. After completing ROTC training and commissioning into the Army, Jim joined the National Guard so he could select his branch and become a combat arms officer. Jim says he was, quote, fortunate enough to get a slot as an artillery man, which is what he wanted, in an infantry unit, which was not what he wanted, end quote. Over the 11 years in the Guard, he grew to love the infantry and was assigned positions that were usually reserved for infantrymen, including a combat tour as company executive officer and the command of a specialty platoon. Jim deployed twice to Iraq. Jim currently works in the federal government and is a volunteer firefighter in Northern Virginia. We invite you to join the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Jim Biddle, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if I can start by asking why you joined the military And this next question actually comes from Colonel Nick Swain, who asked, did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC? Well, thank you for having me. It's definitely an honor to be here. And as far as wanting to join the military, it was was a lifelong goal. You know, both my parents were Army officers, and I just knew from a very young age that I wanted to follow in their footsteps. As far as what I knew... uh, I think in August 2001, most of us had an idea or thought we knew what we were going to be getting into. Uh, But, you know, after, obviously, after 9-11, it turned into the wartime army. And the following four years of training were less focused on the peacetime, uh, peacetime army and focused on an actual, factual combat engagement going on as soon as we're done with training. So we're actually sitting together on campus at James Madison University. Today is September 11th, 2021. Um, It has been 20 years. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what do you remember about how that day changed you? The morning of September 11th, I remember I was on campus in my dorm, asleep on my couch at an hour that most Americans should be up and doing great things. But uh, I was my roommate came in, opened up the front door, threw it open, threw it closed with a little more urgency than I was used to Sam exerting. And he went in, turned on our television, and uh, there was news of the first plane had you know, what, the, the only plane at this point that we were aware of, and like, well, this is a horrible accident. And uh, from there, the, you know, that moment forward, the world began to change. Uh, I don't know at what point exactly we realized that it was an attack. I don't know if there was a defined moment, but I do remember waking up and things were just fine. And, uh, the end of the day, we're at war. I don't know what point we transitioned from A to B, but uh, yeah, we we never went back to the we never went back to September 10th. As far as how it changed me, I don't think that day, that specific day, 
changed me. I don't think it changed. I know it changed some of my friends. They didn't like to travel in public, or they didn't like to travel by air for a while after. They didn't like to be in, in public areas. But I think the world that changed because of that day has had an outsized effect on my life. Uh, the next several years were focused, uh, not exclusively. You know, obviously, I had my my degree. I was trying to earn. I had my family and my friends and. Uh, Colonel Swain, who is genuinely one of my heroes, made it a point for us to not ex- focus exclusively on the military. He told us, your priorities are in this order, academic, social, military. And the reason why he explained that was, actually, I'm not sure if academic or social was first, but he, between the front two, he said, if you are smart and socially well-adjusted, I can make you a good officer. If you aren't smart <laughs> or if you aren't you know socially well adjusted if the military is all you have we don't need fanatics you know you're not going to do well and that was god bless him the despite the fact that we were a nation actively at war uh he wanted us to focus on still being able to grow up and be good americans regardless of our military status and I don't know if he ever fully appreciated that, you know, the effect that that guidance had on us, but I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, from that point forward, the my life was focused on deployments. I joined the National Guard. I wanted to be a combat arms officer, so I joined the National Guard. I was able to choose my, uh, my position. I managed to get, I volunteered for a deployment, and from that point forward, a uh, fair chunk of my life has either revolved around having deployed or the exper- or has benefited or in some cases been drawn back by the experiences I gained while on deployment. Had 9-11 not happened, I honestly could not tell you where I'd be. I could be any number of places at this point. So you deployed twice to Iraq. Um, as yes. part of the global war on terror and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yes. Um, I wonder if you can share your experiences there and and how your experiences serving in Iraq impacted you. I was very fortunate in that my first unit that I got sent over with uh, Charlie Company 3rd Battalion, 116th Infantry. Uh, they took 3rd Battalion and big army decided to split us to the four winds and they took my specific company that I was assigned to and moved us up to to crit within the sunni triangle uh which at the time was a, a relative hotbed for uh horsing around i guess but it was uh it, it was a relative hotbed for combat at the time i'll say and uh, this is during the surge. I got very fortunate in that I had an outstanding commander who taught me how to be an officer. Uh, you know, told us that if, if you'll forgive the the use of gender specific pronouns, but it was an infantry unit, and we were we had a, a support platoon attached to us. But ninety eight, yeah, ninety eight percent of us were were male. So please forgive the gender gender specific pronouns. But he. My commander said, uh, we are here to serve the men. As officers, we are here to serve the men. They're not here to serve us. We are here to make sure they are able to complete their mission, 
that they have the supplies, the logistics, the support, the uh, the leadership, and the guidance that they need. And that was, you know, as you listen to it, there's there's nothing earth shattering about that. That's just how it should be. But I'd never heard it phrased that way before. And he was able to, you know, provide guidance that lasts me for the rest of the career. So I was very fortunate in that aspect. Uh, we also had a mission that actually mattered. We did convoy security up and down the, the SUNY Triangle, uh, running gun trucks on a relatively fun road. And, uh, you know, the the benefit to that was that there's a, you know, well, I'll say the, the bigger thing that got, that came from it was that though we had a relatively dangerous mission, we did not lose anybody. We had several purple hearts and uh we uh and we're discovering now we're discovering later you know a fair amount of tbi from just overpressure and blast but nobody died everybody came home and everybody got to do a mission that we were proud of and uh got to do something challenging and we got to prove ourselves and so that was that was a great benefit to lifelong you know just being able to look back on that and say hey yeah i did this and uh no matter what color the PowerPoint is, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> Can I ask what a follow-up question? Yeah. What were interactions like with folks from the SUNY Triangle? Energetic. Uh, we, in our role, we did have, the, the Army in general did have, uh, did have people going out and making contact with them and whatnot and doing what they could to, you know, genuinely, the hearts and minds has become a bit of a cliche, uh, but almost a pejorative, but the, we were genuinely trying to, to win over the people that were, that were around us. Uh, life's a lot easier when your neighbor doesn't hate you, but our role specifically, we were convoy security and you know if they if they shot at us we shot back if they blew us up we would try and we'd look around like anybody see a guy with a trigger no okay the point at which we had direct face-to-face contact with with you know local citizens was rare what do you want the public to appreciate about United States' military response to the September 11th attacks that are lacking in mainstream media narratives something that i would hope that the american public would appreciate about the the military response was not so much the military response itself but the response of the public to the military deployment in that as opposed to the vietnam generation which my father is a member of uh the general public separated out the individual soldiers fighting from the war that they're fighting. I had, uh, I ran into a friend of my mother's at a bookshop back when we had bookshops, and she said, hey, just so you know, I, I, I don't support the war, but I thank you for what you're doing, and it just kind of, it blew my mind because my, my father had people screaming insults at him while he's walking through the airport just because he was in uniform. They knew nothing about the man, but there was just so much negativity. And so I made a point whenever 
someone said, hey, you know, would walk up to me and say, hey, thank you. I don't, you know, being the son of a Vietnam vet, I very much appreciate that and want you to know that I I appreciate your support. And then I'd go and give my dad a call and let him know that, hey, someone said thank you for what we do. And uh, to this day, I still do that. Just, you know, uh, I feel it's very important to understand that the private on the ground is not the one making the decisions about which nation we're going to invade. He or she is just trying to earn a living, and this is often the best way that they can do it, the most secure way they can do it. So your mother was also in the Army, and Mm -hmm. her father was a landing craft mechanic um, and served in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your, your mother and her service influence you? No, my, my mother definitely did have a very large influence and effect on not just my military service, but also my life in, or my life in general, because she, uh, she decided earlier on in her life that she wanted to, you know, pursue higher education, which was not common or had not happened in her family. And she didn't stop at just becoming the first college graduate in her family, not just first female college graduate, the first college graduate at, you know, in the 1960s. Sorry, I think she graduated in 72. Uh, But, you know, she then went on to get a master's, a PhD. Uh, She commissioned into the Army at a time when women were not common in any form, let alone in the officer corps. And, uh, you know, she was always a, a source of support however uh, she'd also lived her entire life in the shadow of one war or another in that you know she, her father landed marines on as a mechanic uh, in a Higgins boat he landed marines on the shores of Iwo he was at the Battle of Leyte Gulf basically he was in you know the U.S. Navy's greatest hits 19 you know 43 to 45. Uh, he may have joined in 44. I'm not sure. He he joined at 16. <laughs> when, so, you know, I could probably do the math if needed. But uh, she was very supportive of me joining the military before 9-11. And then after the attacks and we repositioned to a wartime footing where a deployment was guaranteed, uh, she was still supportive, but started suggesting, like, hey, you ever thought about uh, maybe not combat arms? <laughs> and, yeah, but she was always always very supportive. But, you know, like I say, she grew up in the shadow of one war or another. She was the, the son of a, you know, a sailor during, in the Pacific sailor during World War II. My father was a forward observer during Vietnam, and then her, you know, her son is volunteering to go off and deploy so she was the fact that she was as supportive as she was given her background and knowledge was a, a real testament to to her in general you now serve as a firefighter september 11th also has particular meaning for first responders in that community i yes. wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what you've seen in that community so i am a few years ago I want to make it clear, I was not a firefighter during the attacks. I came to volunteer firefighting later in life, and 
was fortunate enough to join a very active you know professional fire company that holds training to be very important and uh, it's the the company actually was we I say we my company again one emphasize wasn't there I wasn't there the company uh, actually responded to the Pentagon on 9/11 because we had we were in the area you know we we're only 20 miles away and uh, so my friends that are now uh, have been <laughs> with the company for 20 plus years a lot of them are still there and it is still it's a heavy part of the culture even if you you weren't there it is the single worst day of losses that firefighting as a culture as an organization as a as a group has faced on average you know the numbers fluctuate obviously but on average we lose about a hundred firefighters a year uh, in the United States depending on what sources you you quote for line of duty deaths and we lost 343 in the space of minutes uh, my grandfather who as I, I you know I mentioned I may have mentioned earlier was a career firefighter for 35 years and when I was in high school I you know you can become a volunteer firefighter at 16 where I live it doesn't happen often but you can do it and a friend of mine and I were thinking about going to join a local company and he told me in one of the rare vulnerable moments that this man ever showed he said you know he cautioned me about joining because he said that uh you know, he said, whenever anything happens to any of us, we all feel it. And that was, that was a day that was felt across the, you know, the nation and is still, still resonates. And it's interesting seeing that culture and that effect of that shared experience uh, and how people who join afterwards begin to understand just exactly how significant that day was for the the culture so for the uh you know for for this family everyone talks about their their work family their uh you know uh all the fast and furious families uh you know i got a letter in the mail the other day when i signed up for a particular garbage bin company and they said welcome to the smith disposal garbage family like okay but Firefighting genuinely is a a family of of people who love one another dearly, uh, and for the most part, we do have a couple of people that are kind of jerks, but you know we still care about them nonetheless. But I've heard it said that one of the the truly remarkable great things about the army is that it is for a long time, and still in many parts of America, it is the only place where straight men can openly express love for one another and that was one of the most beautiful things of the army was even the guy you didn't like (laughs) you know before we left we got into a fist fight because he messed with my boots while I was uh, you know while I was in the shower or whatever just you know the uh, even the guy you don't like you still love that guy because they're you're going to look after him 
and there's a lot of that culture also in the in the fire service and so when you have that large of a chunk suddenly suddenly go away you know, suddenly die that it was it's still felt even 20 years later so jim we we recognize here at jmu civic that democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed from the bottom of my heart i want to say thank you for the sacrifices you have made and also recognize that there's a fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to strengthening and reimagining democracy. Military service is obviously a, a good way to serve the nation, a great way. Uh, it affords a lot of benefits to those who do. It is one of the last great large meritocracies, true meritocracies in the nation. However, I really do believe that the best way that we can contribute to the strength of the nation, the best way that we can improve our communities at the local, national, and every level in between is to talk with people who you disagree with and not just immediately dismiss them or put them in a specific category and say, oh, well, they have this job, so obviously they're, they're going to you know, be against or for or whatever. If we can talk to the people that we disagree with and hear them out and not try to change their minds, just listen, that I think would go further than anything I personally have done, uh, you know, in, in uniform. If we can make that something that we all do, that is, that will stop wars before they start, and I don't believe that to be hyperbole. There are no sides in America. We are all Americans. We just have differing opinions of how to go forward. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.